0: Dr. Sheridan, I'm curious, what's your first memory of NEFSAP?
1: Probably the first time I needed to uh, sit for the boards again. I started looking for sites and obviously the ASN website was the first place I looked. I I have to say I thought it was fantastic in terms of a review.
0: And and Dr. McGrath, what about you, what was your first memory of NEFSAP?
2: So I did my basic nephrology training back in Ireland and um I certainly use that along with textbooks to try to build my knowledge base. Um, you know, I'd read a topic in a textbook and then go to NEFSAP to see where the field is right now and what the recent material is. And as a fellow, I really found it an invaluable source of a lot of material put together in a digestible way.
0: So I guess, Dr. McGrath, just to continue on that topic, is you advise... Fellows, and and let's say people as they're preparing for their first recertification, what advice do you give them in terms of how best to use NAFSAP as an educational tool?
2: Well, I think one of the challenges, both in training and for anyone who's recertifying now, is the sheer volume of research and literature that is being produced. And how do you choose where you're going to start? How do you pick what's important? And I think. What I suggest to people is that if you read the relevant NEFSAP issues, you can see the areas that are familiar to you and then see where the gaps are in your knowledge. And if you find that there's something you want to learn more about, the references are there. Those are the important studies that have been chosen by an expert in the field. So you know that these are ones that are considered to be of significance, and then you can go back and read in greater depth. Um, if that's where what your own needs are. So I think it's very useful in both an update, but also in helping you find what those gaps are and how you can fill them in. And,
0: and Dr. Sheridan, as you were approaching the opportunity to be um, responsible, if you will, for NAFSAP, what were some of the things that you wanted to make sure that you emphasized?
1: That it's an update uh, of current literature, which requires setting a framework we presume a certain degree uh, amount of information that the clinician already has, but you need to set the stage for recent, um, for updates in current literature. So, for our writers, frame the problem. You frame the current knowledge base, and then you incorporate data from the last two years into that knowledge base. Uh, And I thought that was my priority because then it does fulfill the requirement to update practicing clinicians. Um, But also for, as Martina suggested, for a a fellow or somebody new to the field to get somehow apply the latest information into your own framework of knowledge is important.
0: And and what changes most between when someone completes their fellowship, and when they've been in practice for five or ten years? Where where do you think the biggest gaps are sort of thematically?
1: Current literature. I think there is a gap. There is a great length of time when RCTs are published and practice changes. And the degree to which we can close that gap, to some degree, determines how effective the clinical practice of medicine is. Uh, So uh, an example would be uh, the SGL2 inhibitors. Given, and certainly this could change over time, but given the data we now have, uh, you would want uh, SGL2 inhibitors to be incorporated into current practice, but with all the caveats about their use that are out there. And it's very hard to keep up with literature for a a busy practicing clinician. Um, and there is a natural tendency not to embrace current developments uh, until it's somehow digested and explained by experts. And that's what I think NEFSAP attempts to do.
0: So, Dr. McGrath, as you're thinking about NEFSAP trying to address this issue of, of filling in these gaps, what can we look forward to over the next couple of years?
2: I think with the new format. And the fact that we will have more articles in each issue that are written by specific experts in the field. Um, we will have, say for instance, for our upcoming hypertension episode, um, issue, we will have an expert in um, the epidemiology of hypertension write that specific issue. We'll have um, write that specific article. We will have an expert on the management of hypertension write on that topic. So we will have um, authors within their specific field who are um, attending conferences, doing the actual trials, and really thinking very deeply about these questions every day, putting out their summary of the relevant literature that they think clinicians should be applying to their patients um, on a day-to-day basis. I think that will be the granular impact, I think, of uh, one of the more important granular impacts of the change um, in NESTAP going forward.
0: Dr. Sheridan, I'm curious about your background.
1: I um, started in basic science. I was studying molecular mechanisms of acute tubular necrosis. And as the mechanisms drew further and further away from the kidney, it became very clear to me, I, I could either be a molecular biologist or a nephrologist, and I really did not want to uh, dispense with clinical nephrology. Around the same time, uh, up to date, Bud Rose and Ted Post were looking for a third editor uh, for a nephrology section, and it seemed like a perfect way back to clinical nephrology. So I edited UpToDate up up to date um, for about 10 years, and that was great. I just learned so much there but wanted to get back to the clinical, to the nephrology community, to some degree, the academic nephrology community. And the NETSAP was a a absolutely perfect um, way to contribute more to the community of
0: uh, nephrologists. And Dr. McGrath, what about your background?
2: Um, I'm a transplant nephrologist. And similar to Alice, I spent quite a bit of time in the lab. Um, I worked on basic immunology and mechanisms of transplant rejection uh, for a number of years. And then more recently, um, I've done more training in medical education and started to get more heavily involved in different teaching and educational roles. And as a nephrologist, and I suppose an educator, one of the things that you know I always think about is the volume of research that's out there How do you try to figure out what's important and how do you keep up to date? How do you learn? So what drew me to NEFSAP is really I found this is a a very exciting opportunity to use my background and my training in education and my own interest in nephrology and um, staying up to date on everything and then being involved in something that's so dynamic um, and changing all the time and moving with the field. Uh, The opportunity to share expert knowledge, but really to impact patient care down the line and see our patients do better and disseminate the, uh, the important knowledge that's out there.
0: Dr. McGrath, I guess just as a transplant nephrologist, I'm curious as to your thoughts as to a lot is happening there from a policy perspective. That may not change necessarily the clinical practice of transplant nephrology, but it's obviously going to change what the field looks like. How does NEFSAP address those types of changes?
2: Well, I think the policy changes that we're seeing um, coming in transplant are overdue and incredibly welcome, and particularly the immunobill that's currently working through Congress, I think will be a massive advance um, for our field and for our patients. One of the major focuses that we have Um, in transplant at the moment is effective use of organs and reducing discard rates um, for kidneys. And I think NESFAP can also play an important role um, in that particular um, issue because, you know, we're starting to do more hepatitis C positive kidneys into hepatitis C negative donors. We're starting to try and increase our use of um, more Higher KDPI kidneys, and these are the kidneys that maybe are not of optimal quality, but can get patients off dialysis and give them good quality of life for a few years. So trying to um, use these kidneys also requires the engagement of the nephrology community. And non-transplant nephrologists also need to understand that these are useful organs that can give um, good quality of life and survival benefit to their patients. I think NEFSAP has an important role to play in that in terms of educating our community um, as to these issues and showing them showing people the literature that is behind these advances and um, where the field is going and where we hope what we hope to achieve with, with these particular changes.
0: Dr. Sheridan, I'm just curious about as you think through the next couple of years, where do you think some of the flashpoints are going to be in terms of clinical topics, maybe disagreements among experts in a certain area, you know, where, do, where can we look forward to maybe some more controversial um, issues of NephSAP?
1: Well, I think controversial issues, they're fantastic opportunities and flashpoints are an excellent opportunity. Where they're going to lie, I'm not sure. I actually think if we do bring in cross-disciplines, we're likely to introduce some controversy. I'm not sure I want to predict where they will be.
0: Are there topics that NAFSAP hasn't, in the the past, covered that you think are opportunities for um, sort of clinical opportunities for nephrologists that you may either focus an entire issue on or be part of an issue?
1: Yeah, interstitial nephritis. Uh, In the past, we haven't really uh, dedicated entire issues to this. And there are a couple of areas that I, I strongly think we should cover Uh, An example, Mesoamerican nephropathy, or CKD, of unknown etiology.
0: As you're organizing the first issue, what should people be looking forward to?
1: Well, there's a translation of the ACC AHA guidelines uh, in terms of evaluation and management. The evaluation piece is written uh, by Drs. Townsend and Cohen. Um, The Treatment topic is Sandy Taylor, who uh, was very actively involved in formulation of the ACC guidelines. Um, So that's really uh, the mainstay of the issue. We have uh, an epidemiology section uh, written by Priya Vart, who is uh, really—he's actually a PhD from the Netherlands, trained at Hopkins, I believe, but has done some fantastic work on the social determinants and epidemiologic outcomes of vascular disease, mostly including hypertension. And um, and then the pathophysiology is a tricky one because it is so complex and so far-reaching in hypertension. Uh, but, but that's written by Dr. Joseph Gigliotti uh, from Liberty University in Virginia.
0: So you've mentioned both hypertension and SGLT2 inhibitors and, and diabetic kidney disease, and, and and then you've referred to a couple of guidelines. I'm curious, and this is really a question for both of you, given the proliferation of guidelines and the fact that a lot of clinical guidelines don't perfectly align and there's some, some conflict between and among them, how does NEFSAP address those differences of opinion?
1: Yeah, that may be one of the flashpoints you just mentioned. Uh, Dr. Taylor actually did a remarkable job uh, summing up the different guidelines and how ACC/AHA falls uh, falls in, into the spectrum. Um, I, I, to some degree, we have to be a little bit opinion based. Uh, certainly, the Sprint guidelines puts uh, you know a bit of a heavy emphasis. I, I mean, ACC. Relies heavily on the results of SPRINT, and yet it requires uh, expert analysis uh, to distill that for practice. And I think the same is true of how we handle the management of hypertension in NEPSAP. I, I mean, I think to some degree we rely on our expert authors to interpret the ACC guidelines for, um, for clinical use, particularly in our patient population.
0: Dr. McGrath, anything to add?
2: Yeah, I would just add there, some of those conflicting guidelines from different societies also reflect the different perspectives that people are coming from. So if we look at the SGLT2 inhibitors, for instance, the endocrinologists don't see them as very good for the treatment of diabetes necessarily, because they don't they don't take down your A1C terribly well, whereas there's a lot of enthusiasm within nephrology and cardiology about these agents for improved outcomes in heart failure and reduced progression of diabetic kidney disease. So I think for many of these guidelines, it does depend a little bit on the perspective of the field where they are seen to apply. And I think that's one of the um, opportunities for NEFSAp as well to um, look at and try to see this more globally, look at these from different perspectives and give it in a, in a kind of bite-sized way that nephrologists can see, okay, if I look at this from an endocrine point of view, this is what I would do. But from a kidney specific, this is what is relevant for the patient who's in front of me.
0: So just as we're wrapping up, I'd be curious to hear from both of you around if you were teaching nephrology either to the medical student, the resident, or to a fellow, and you were using NESAP as an educational tool, what types of things, how would you use it in this setting?
2: So we actually use NEFSAP as a training tool in our fellowship program at the Brigham. And um, what we do is we um, take an issue of NESSAP and we start to work through the questions with the fellows. And as we work through the questions, uh, we go back to the text um, with you know, correct and incorrect answers and try to figure out where we got things right and where we got things wrong and how we can learn and what the updates are. So we find it a very, very useful tool um, to get our fellows discussing cases and then starting to, um, that are the cases that are presented in the clinical vignettes, and then start to work through the answers and think about where their knowledge is and, and how they can learn using the issues.
0: Dr. Sheridan, how about for you? Is there anything in addition that you use NEFSAP for either for fellows or I'm kind of curious about other trainees? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I actually think you could use it almost any stage of training. Uh, certainly, yeah, I think I actually think you could use it in the medical school. Uh, HMS starts teaching pathophysiology, physiology and pathophysiology together, and I can easily see NETSAP being used as a springboard for that discussion. Um, but also, at the other end of the spectrum, perhaps the greatest utility is teaching a practicing clinician. Uh, who who is seeing large numbers of patients has actually very little time to devote to continuing education. Uh, And it's imperative that the data are extremely readable and digestible, as Martina said, um, accurate and provide a distillation of current literature.
0: Again, a question for both of you is you are editing revising and then ultimately finalizing different articles within NEFSAP. What, clearly the piece of being readable from a perspective of a busy clinician, being understandable to someone who's on the, sort of in the educational continuum, what else do you look for? What are some of the specifics that you say, yes, this, this is an excellent contribution to NFSAP?
1: Transparency, that you state exactly the quality of the data. Uh, what is driven by a randomized trial versus what is expert, uh, expert opinion based on uh, clinical experience? Readability and navigability. Uh, readability, uh, some things are better written than others. And the degree to which we can make this readable uh, is good <laughs> for our audience. Navigability, to some degree, depends on our website, the new website that's now being made available is such an exciting tool to work with uh, because that's obviously a departure from text-based literature. And to some degree, navigability and readability merge together in tools for for the present and certainly the
0: future. Dr. McGrath, how about from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I
2: think when I'm um, reading these articles, I... I want I to echo, I suppose, a lot of what Alice has said. Um, the transparency in terms of how robust and reliable is this particular data that we're quoting? Who are the patients that it applies to? Um, so that there's a certain amount of specificity and detail around each of these recommendations and statements. And then also where we do ask some of our authors to add in some basic science and pathophysiology, but that's presented in a way that is understandable and relevant to our clinician readers because, you know, if there is a large section of material that goes back to mouse studies that we cannot see applying to our patients, then obviously that's less relevant and more um, difficult to approach. But if we can... Um, use those examples of basic models that really represent well what's happening in our patients. I think those are very powerful uh, learning tools to reinforce um, what the changes in clinical practice and and understanding are.
0: Well, thank you both for taking the time to to have this conversation. I'm really excited about um, the direction that you're leading uh, NEFSAP, and um, we look forward to the first issue.